Okay, my name is Nate. I'm the host of Rooted in Revelation, where we aim to make God's revelation our foundation in mind, desire, and will. And with us today is a good friend of mine, Dallas, and a very special guest. I would consider him someone that's actually inspired me to start my own podcast. His name is Eli Ayala, correct? Am I saying it right? I think so. That's correct. Very good. Good, good. Yeah, so we're just here to um, kind of talk about the ins and outs of what apologetics is and kind of just the basic 101 stuff. And with us, you know, Eli's going to be kind of helping answer and walk through these questions. He's very well equipped to talk about these things and to help us out and to, you know, build our own understanding of what apologetics are and the purpose of them and maybe even helpful in de defining some terms for us so we kind of get the the gist of it. So that being said, I guess, uh, Eli, would you mind maybe sharing like your testimony of like how you became a Christian and what your kind of life was like and how you eventually got into apologetics? Yeah, well, I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in uh, going to a Spanish Pentecostal church. So I grew up in, a, in the Assemblies of God church. My earliest memory, like my life memory is in church. So if you, if you were to ask me, what is the, the, the earliest I can go back in my memory, it's me in Pampers. I still remember wearing Pampers and having a baby bottle that had Mickey Mouse, Pluto, and I think it was Daffy Duck. It was like super, and I, it's, it's embedded in my mind. I have no, no idea why, but um, so I grew up in a Spanish a Pentecostal church and I went to that specific church as a small church um, from birth to like my early twenties. And the interesting thing is, and a lot of people find very interesting is that I grew up in a Spanish speaking church, but I, I don't know Spanish. It just never caught on to me. So um, I would uh, go to church Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays, and we had two and a half to three hours long services. So it was very long. <laughs> I would joke around that Jesus, uh, Jesus left before the, um, before the service was over. So, you know, you know, the service would still be going on. Jesus would be like, yeah, I'll see you next week. Um, and um, on Sundays, I would have church uh, in the morning, um, two and a half to three hours long, and then church in the evening, two and a half hours or so. Um, and so when I was able to read, um, I didn't understand what they were saying most of the time. So I just took my Bible it was a little new international version uh, Bible. And I just sat there and read it Tuesdays, Thursdays, Sundays, two and a half hours, you know, whatever, just sit there and read my Bible. And doing that over the years, um, I kind of fell in love with the Bible, um, theology, um, even when I would sleep over my, my, my cousin's house and my, my, my family, all of us went to church. And so we'd watch a movie and then afterwards we just stay up all night talking about the things of God and asking questions and exploring different things and arguing back and forth. So my whole life was very much entrenched in, uh, growing up in a Christian home, growing up in a Christian context and always talking about and arguing about the things of God. So I always had questions and, and things like that. And so Growing up in that church, I kind of grew up in, in a sort of bubble and never really experienced any opposition to my faith. And I knew my faith really well. I would say that even before getting into apologetics, if you were to catch me on the street and start, you know, 
you know, coming at me from like a cultic perspective, a Jehovah's witness or a Mormon, I would probably still be able to hold my own because I really did know my Bible very well. And I was a very systematic thinker. I, I really tried to define my terms. I was always geared towards apologetics, if you will. So, um, but again, I grew up in a bubble. So I really never had people challenge me in a way that, you know, uh, that really made me think about why I believed what I believed. And so it was, it was until I went to my first year in college in a community college in, in, on Long Island, New York, that I took as an elective, um, the Bible as literature or literature of the Bible. And it was supposed to be basically just a class on the Bible as a, as a piece of literature. And I was like, that sounds super easy. So I'm totally going to sign up for that class. I know my Bible and we're probably gonna have interesting discussions. And, you know, so when I enrolled in that class, Instead of learning about the Bible as literature, the professor, who was an obvious unbeliever, I just spent the first half hour ridiculing the Bible and trying to show various contradictions and things like that. Um, and I gave some pushback here and there, and I was able to kind of hold my own a little bit. But he did bring up some stuff that I, I really never thought about before. You know, Bible contradiction. I never thought about that. I always assumed that the Bible was the word of God. I, I read the Bible. I never really, not, no con things that were contradictory ever stood out to me. Um, in a way that, you know, that the teacher was presenting it. And so that really challenged my faith uh, during that, that semester. And so I did an experiment. I pretended to be an atheist uh, for a short while. I wasn't an atheist, but I pretended to be and really looked into, well, what, what other things do unbelievers say about the Bible? You know, what are some of the best arguments against the Christian faith? And so when I sufficiently kind of dug into that topic, I kind of reverted back to my Christian perspective and said, Christianity has been around for over 2000 years. Surely, you know, this isn't new, like surely someone, you know, uh, responded to these things or addressed them somewhere. And through my, my studies, I was introduced to the topic of apologetics. I found karm.org, uh, with Matt Slick, a Christian apologetics research ministry. So I would go to that website and, you know, try to find quick answers to, you know, little objections here and there. And uh, that really opened me up to apologetics. Now, presuppositional apologetics, I knew nothing about until my, when, when I got married, my brother-in-law needed a, my iPod, okay, um, to DJ a, a wedding, okay, because the DJ couldn't make it. So his friend asked him, do you think he could do it? And so they, he wanted to use my iPod and put and hook it up to these giant speakers. And that would have been the main music during the reception. And so I gave him my iPod. He cleared my iPod. I didn't have a lot of stuff on there. And he filled it with his content. And, you know, he used it for the wedding. Gave my iPad, my iPod back. Didn't clear it. It still had his stuff on it. And I'm listening. I'm like, who the heck is Greg Bonson? Like, what's this? What's, you know, what's this all about? And that's when I, when I listened to the debate between Greg Bonson and Gordon Stein. And, you know, like Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. I was like, this is different. You know, I was just like, oh, this is interesting, you know? Um, and then um, I began to study eschatology, the study of end times. Um, and when I found Gary DeMar from American Vision, I noticed that he knew Dr. Bonson. And so when I found his, his website, American Vision, I started ordering all of his books, Bonson's books and Gary DeMar's books. And that kind of opened me up to the world of like reformed theology and presuppositional apologetics. And the rest is history. I never stopped doing it. So here I am. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, I remember iPod shuffles and the old big box iPods. What was the other one, Dallas? Uh, the uh, where are they? The shuffle Dude. was good, man. I had the shuffle. Yeah. yeah. 
You just took that on my sleeve, walking around like I was like, yeah, come at me, bro. Yeah. Get down with that tech. Yeah, and then they had the other one. What was it? Uh, it wasn't Apple, but it was the who I'm made Microsoft. Yeah, Zoom. It was a Zoom. Zoom. Zoom right? That's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I remember those as well. Yeah. So, so you kind of brought um, some terms up that like maybe you could help our listeners maybe understand. So you brought up, well, I mean, I brought up as well just the term apologetics. Like, what's that mean, and and what's the Bible have to say about that idea? Yeah, um, I think that's important to define our terms, and especially for people who don't know what apologetics is, um, just the word itself can sound really intimidating. And people can say, well, you know, I'm not going to deal with that. That's probably something for the pastor or maybe like a seminary professor or something like that. Um, But apologetics is actually a biblical term. It comes from the word apologia, which um, apologists, usually people who defend the faith, usually will quote 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 which says to set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to give a reason uh, to those who ask for the reason for the hope that's in us, yet doing so with gentleness and respect. And so the word in that verse in Greek to give a defense or to give an answer is the word apologia. And so apologetic simply means, it's just a fancy way of saying to give a defense. Hmm. And, And once you define it simply that way, then people become very familiar with that idea. Everyone does apologetics. If you're a Muslim, you do apologetics. If you're an atheist, you do apologetics. If you don't even care about these issues, you do apologetics. The very moment you argue with someone in defense of any position, whether it's your parents, you know, you're arguing with your parents why your curfew should be 11 as opposed to 10. You're giving an apologia. You're giving a, a defense of your position. So that's basically what it is. Apologia, apologia or apologetics is to make a defense. And Christian apologetics is basically to make a defense of the Christian faith. Hmm. that's great yeah that's helpful how you laid that out the best definition i've ever heard yeah thank you (laughs) keep it simple yeah noob section over here i was like ah all right now i'm on the same page thank you yeah yeah no worries yeah an apologetics is to make a defense and someone who is an apologist is someone who defends the faith so I, i would introduce myself as a christian apologist i'm a person who defends the faith and teaches other christians how to defend the faith Great. Yeah, this is, I think, exciting to have Dallas with us, Eli, because he's like, this is all completely new stuff to him. You know, um, we actually grew up together. We're best friends growing up. And uh, he's he's recently come back uh, to being interested in Christianity and becoming a Christian. And cool. so all this stuff is like super new and exciting uh, for him. So I thought it'd oh, been be like- great. Yeah. Through, you know, I kind of been living that walk through Christian life where I'm like, yeah, I uh, signed that golden ticket that was like pray in Sunday school when you're eight years old. I did it like <laughs> 4,000 times every time they had to pray to be saved. So, yeah, I think well, I, like, I went up every time for the altar call so I can get the free Bible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and up Bibles in my church, but they at least told us we got the golden ticket to heaven. So I was like, I'm signing up every time I can. <laughs> yeah. Just to be sure. Yeah, I want to make well, well, I think that's I, it's it's encouraging to see that you're interested in this sort of stuff because um, when we talk about apologetics, defending the faith, uh, that usually um, surprises some people who aren't uninitiated in these sorts of discussions because when we speak of the Christian faith, people understand it as just that it's faith. I mean, you don't you don't you don't defend your faith. I mean, it's just my belief, and so you have your belief. I have my belief. I have my personal relationship with Jesus. And so, you know, there's that, you know, how do I know God exists? Well, I know because I believe in my heart that he exists. 
and there's just nothing more to the conversation. That is the perception of the average Christian. Um, yeah, but that's, where I would stuck. that's where I would get stuck at. You know, like somebody would challenge me and I'm like, where do I go? How do I tell them the right thing? Right, right. And, and what's important is, is people who don't know that we should be defending our faith. Um, they don't know it because they are not reading their Bible and keeping in mind examples of this very thing in scripture. I mean, Jesus did apologetics. The apostle Peter did apologetics. The apostle Paul did apologetics. Paul reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue, proving that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was to come and suffer, right? Jesus often shut the mouths of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? The apostle Peter gave his, his um, famous Areopagus address in, in Acts chapter 17 when he was debating with the Greek philosophers and the Stoics and the Epicureans. I mean, these are examples just found in scripture. And first Peter chapter three, verse 15, the apostle Peter is addressing Christians who are undergoing persecution. He says, listen, you're going to undergo persecution. You're going to suffer, but you need to stand firm, set apart Christ as Lord in your heart and be ready to give a reason for anyone who asks. And so he's not talking to Christian scholars. He's talking to just the average believer. And so when the scriptures commands us to defend the faith, you know, you know why that's important? Because the command to defend the faith presupposes that the faith is itself defensible. Mm. You ever think about you think about that, right? That if we're if we're told to defend the faith, then that means the faith is defensible. And so to say, I believe in God simply because I believe it in my heart and there's nothing more to say is insufficient and is itself not a biblical approach to addressing that question. So I think that's very important to recognize the examples of apologetics done in scripture itself. Right, too. And then just the idea of faith, you know, you kind of mentioned like a lot of us just take it as this, oh, it's just this kind of subjective, uh, weird thing that's true for individuals that aren't, you know, you know, oh, if you're a Muslim, oh, that's great that you have that faith is good enough for you. And my faith is good enough for me. That settles it. We don't need to debate or argue about this. Right. And, you know, like you've mentioned the the definition of faith, I would say today in the West or just 21st century is not the definition that the Bible gives of faith, right? That's right. Would you maybe talk a little bit about how that is different and what's different about it? Yeah, I think that's very important. Again, words are understood within a particular context. So uh, the word faith is thrown around quite promiscuously, right? People just assume it means right. something when in fact it almost rarely means what they think it means. Uh, so when the atheist heard that I'm one of those guys now. So I'm excited to see where this goes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, you're gonna hear about? The, the word faith is, is not simply a belief like, oh, I believe in God. You have to understand that the Bible almost never argues for the existence of God. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't. The Bible commands that we defend the faith and part of the faith is the existence of God. But the Bible assumes the existence of God from the very beginning. Look at Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. And it actually calls a fool those who deny the, the existence of God. In other words, in the Bible, the existence of God is so obvious that it's foolish to reject what is so obvious. And that's why the Bible says in the book of Psalm, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay, so um, faith is not belief that God exists. That's one way you can use it but the Bible assumes God's existence. And so it doesn't argue. So it doesn't speak very much about um, belief in God because it assumes the existence of God, 
because God is actually interacting with his people. I mean, it's not like you just need to believe I exist. No, God revealed himself to an entire nation. So the assumption is you are in covenant with your God. So faith in the Bible predominantly refers to a trust in a reliable source, namely God himself. That's why you, the, the Old Testament is filled with language of covenant promises, right? God trust the people trusting in their, in their covenant, God trusting in the Lord. So the word faith biblically is more of a trust in God, not a belief that he exists because the Bible just assumes he exists. So it's not really talking about, you know, when the Bible, when God talks to the, the ancient Israelites, he's not talking to a bunch of atheists or enlightenment thinkers. You know what I mean? They are already in contact with the covenant God who's revealed himself to the entire nation. I mean, this is the very God who opened the Red Sea and they walked through on dry land. It's not an issue of, I wonder if he exists. The assumption is he does exist. Faith then is now an issue of trusting in God. So when someone says you Christians have faith, it's like, uh, yeah, we do have faith. But what the unbeliever typically means by faith is kind of this like blind belief. And that's just not how the Bible uses faith. Mm. You know, you know what I'm saying? So the, the unbeliever, the, the atheist could disagree with, uh, with regards to the truth of Christianity, but you can't define faith that's not biblical and then thrust that upon me as though that's the position I hold. You know, I've had atheists define faith um, like this. Faith is belief in something without evidence. Where'd you get yeah, that from? That's, that's what I hear most of the time. Yeah. From, uh, and, and, I, and I'll say, I'll say, come again. Wh which book of the Bible did you derive that definition of faith? That has never, ever been the definition of faith that Christians accept. No, 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 no. That, that's what it is. It's faith. It's faith without evidence. Nope. That's not, that's not what it is. <laughs> it's trust. Remember, the Bible's not arguing for God's existence. It assumes he's already there. And so the faith that we're to have is a trust within the context of relationship. Now, granted, I do believe that God exists, and I'm willing to talk about why I think that God exists. But the biblical notion of faith is not necessarily pertaining to that specific issue because the Bible is not written to a bunch of skeptics. It's written to people who've actually encountered God via his revelation. Mm. Revelation. Great term. Which, which, by the way, I think this is important for mm. not just apologetics in, in general, but just in, in more directly, we need to understand that our views of faith and our particular theological perspectives and things like that need to be derived from scripture, and we shouldn't let the unbeliever have preconceived definitions of what he thinks we believe, and then hoist those preconceived definitions upon us as though that's our view. You know, usually that's how the straw right. man is, is developed, right? A straw man is a, is a logical fallacy in which someone will reconstruct your argument in, in, in a way that misrepresents it, and then they'll refute that, that position because it's just an easy position to refute, but it's not really your position, right? right? And a lot of unbelievers do that. You know, faith is is belief without evidence. Some one person defined faith as believing something you know ain't true. You know, you you really know it's not true, but you just believe. It's just this blind trust, and that's not the kind of faith that the Bible uh, speaks of at all. Right, and you can't even mention that idea or that concept of like people bringing. Um unbiblical view of something and trying to hoist it on to you as a believer and try to tell you what you believe but even like with the definition of faith like well their definition of faith they're probably taking from like what an english dictionary or something that's sure. explaining that differently than how the bible's context would deal with faith 
Right. Words, words are understood in their context. You, you don't right. get to hoist the, your definition of faith on me by quoting Marian Dictionary. I mean, exactly. <laughs> it's a, the word faith is going to be defined in the specific context in which we find, it, find ourselves. Here's, a, here's a, a way that this becomes very relevant in apologetics and defending the faith. You know, uh, people will say, you know, people will try to say the idea of God being all powerful is an is an illogical view. OK, um, so, for example, you know, they'll you know, people have brought this kind of little riddle, you know, uh, and hoisted it upon Christians. You know, it can God create a rock so big that he can't lift. Right. You ever hear that before? Yeah. The, Right. So, so, so the point is if God, if God can create a rock so big that he can't lift, if you say, yes, he can create a rock so big that he can't lift the skeptic will say, "Uh uh-huh. Well, then your God is not all powerful because the rock he's unable to lift the rock. Well, then you say, Oh, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I'm sorry. He can't create a rock so big that he can't lift. Oh, so then your God's not all powerful because there's something he can't create. You see? So the Mm -hmm. point of the riddle is to show the um, a logical inconsistency within the very idea of an all-powerful God, okay? Um, so, so now here is the reason why we don't allow the unbeliever to define terms for us and then hoist it upon our position. Same thing with faith. So, you know, an, an atheist tried to bring that objection. I, I anticipated it before he brought it up. So, you know, the atheist was like, um, he says, so your God can do anything, right? And I said, nope. He was just like, whoa, whoa, what do you mean he can't? Like, this is your position. God can do literally anything. Isn't he all powerful? I said, sure. Well, then he could do anything. I'm like, nope. He's like, well, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, the Bible says God can't lie. And they were like, oh, well, if he can't lie, oh, then there's something he can't do. And so he's not all powerful, right? And I'm like, no, he's all powerful and he can't lie. Now, the problem with the idea of omnipotence, which is a big old scary word, which just refers to the idea of all being all powerful, is that what the unbeliever had a preconception of is the idea that omnipotence, being all powerful, um, means that this being who is all powerful can perform even logical contradictions, right? That's the assumption. They'd be like, well, if your God can't lie, then he's not all powerful. Like, no, 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 no. The idea of omnipotence being all powerful does not and has never entailed within Christian thought the idea that God can do that which is logically absurd. You see what I'm saying? And it is logically absurd and logically contradictory for a perfectly holy, righteous God who is the ground of all truth to tell a lie. It's a contradiction. So well, what if God could tell a lie? Well, then he wouldn't be God. That'd be a contradiction for a perfectly holy and righteous being to tell a lie. So it's not, that's not an inability of God in with respect to his being all powerful. You're asking me, can God perform a logical contradiction? And the answer is no. Why? Well, because logical contradictions aren't a thing. Can God create a square circle? No, not because he's not all powerful because a square circle is just a, is just a jumble of words in a, in a, in a, in a phrase. It's, there's no such thing as a square circle. That's like saying, can God create a Garfunkel? Well, what the heck's a Garfunkel? I don't know. Beats me. You see, so, so God's omnipotence, his all powerfulness does not entail that he does logically absurd things. And so again, this is why it's important to define our terms. Omnipotence for the Christian is understood within biblical categories. He is able to do what he's able to do, but he doesn't do things that are contrary to who he is. Lying is contrary to who he is, and therefore God cannot do it. 
And that's not a deficiency in his power. Okay. So we want to know what the Bible says about these things, how the Bible defines these categories. Um, and that's the position we should hold and not let the unbeliever um, have preconceived definitions and hoist that upon us as though we're now responsible to answer, you know, you know, well, if God can't do this, you know, answer, you know, answer my objection, then, you know, how can you have, an, we need to define our terms in biblical categories. Now, if you want to have fun with the atheist, you could, you could go both ways. You know, suppose if the atheist says, can, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift? If I say no, and he says, ah, God's not all powerful. Well, what do you mean? Well, if God's all powerful, he should be able to do anything, right? I'm like, cool. All right, fine. He can create a rock so big he can't lift. And then they'll be like, ah, but he's not all powerful. No, yes, he is. But he can't lift it. No, he can lift it. Well, you just said he can't lift it. No, he can lift it and he can't lift it. The person's like, well, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. That's a contradiction. Well, if you're going to ask me a contradictory question, I'm going to give you a contradictory answer. Ooh. So yeah. now it reverts right back on the skeptic. The problem is not my idea of God. The problem is you are asking an, a, a nonsensical sort of question. But if you're going to foist that definition on me, I'll grant it. If you want me to, if you if you want me to grant your nonsensical question, then you're going to have to grant my nonsensical answer that God mm. can lift a rock and not lift it at the same time and in the same sense. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Um, so now, you know, kind of talking a little bit about that, I was wondering if we could maybe move on to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I'm sure for Dallas, it would probably be like, okay, you know, apologetics is one thing, but now, oh, wait, there's all these different apologetic methodologies. Oh, mm -hmm. you have like these different schools of thought. I was wondering maybe if you could maybe talk a little bit about how presuppositional apologetics um, is different in comparison to, you know, you can go with, you know, classical or evidential or, you know, Alvin Planket, is it Planket? Plank? Plantinga. Plantinga. I can never say his name. Plantinga, yeah. But uh, what is it? Reformed epistemology um, or some of these different schools of thought with apologetics. Maybe you could maybe unpack a little bit about what those things are and how they're different and what they emphasize on. Well, um, I, I like to point people, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of apologetics, you, you don't want to jump necessarily into the different methodologies. I think um, okay. Jude, Jude chapter one, verse three, I believe uh, Jude says that I found it necessary to write to you, uh, to earnestly contend, excuse me, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And I think that's a good summary of what we're defending as Christians. And then perhaps that we can, I can make a segue into apologetic methodology. What are we called to defend? In 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to defend the faith. In Jude chapter 1, verse 3, we're told to contend earnestly for the faith. What is the faith? Well, in Jude chapter one, verse three, we're told it is the faith delivered to the saints once for all. And what is that faith delivered? Well, it is the body of Christian truth, right? It's the teaching of the apostles, the teachings of Jesus. And that constitutes, you know, what the Bible teaches. It's our theology. It's the theological truths that are given to us in, um, in God's revelation. And so what we are called to defend is Christian truth. Now, I'm a presuppositionalist. That is a particular brand of apologetic methodology. Now, I don't want to scare people away. I mean, these, these are just big old fancy words. But basically, what presuppositional apologetics seeks to do is not only defend the body of Christian truth, but to utilize a method of doing so that is itself consistent and derived from that body of Christian truth. 
so that if the Bible teaches me that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1, 7, or when it says in the book of Colossians that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then in Romans 1, it teaches me that the unbeliever knows God. Then because that's part of Christian truth, because it's in the Bible, the method by which I approach the unbeliever will be such that I will take all those things into consideration when engaging the unbeliever so as to not use a method of defense that is in conflict with the body of Christian truth. Mm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So if the Bible tells me something about the unbeliever, I want to consider those truths in the very method I use to defend the faith. Okay. Now, what is presuppositional apologetics? Well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, I, I growing up, I watched a lot of uh, martial art movies. I'm a big martial arts fan. I love Asian cinema, you know, the bad dubbing movies, you know, mm-hmm. I even watched the new Mortal Kombat. <laughs> oh, how was, was that sidebar? But... Yeah, the trailer was better than the movie. You got, but uh, you know, I like a good, I like a good martial art flick. Um, but, but when I was growing up, I used to watch these, these films where there would always be some school of martial arts, the style of, of fighting that was right. always challenging some other school of martial arts. You know, my style is better than your style, you know, yada, yada, yada. Let's take the idea of martial arts as apologetics, right? defending yourself. And then you have different methodologies of defense. You have Kung Fu, you have Karate, you have Kempo, you have Jiu-Jitsu. Maybe throw in a little Krav Maga, you know, some is we're talking about the Bible, Israeli martial arts, you know, uh, which, by the way, is quite deadly. Um, I was watching a documentary once on, on the deadliest martial art, arts in the world, and they actually uh, voted that Krav Maga is actually the deadliest martial art that's available out there. That's I never even heard of, of that. <laughs> on, yeah, Krav Maga. Look it up on YouTube. It's pretty. pretty yeah, I probably will. Yeah. But um, uh, you can take a look at um, apologetics as sort of like martial arts in general. And then you can take the methods of apologetics to correspond to, say, styles of martial arts. Okay, so so um, you have the karate guy who has his style. And if you know anything about karate, it it has a very unique flavor to it. When you see someone doing karate, it's very different than when you see someone doing kung fu. Okay, so karate is very straight line, very hard, rigid movements. Okay, kung fu is very circular and fluid, right? You block, it's a block and a move into something else, right? Karate's more, you know? Then you got the jujitsu that has these grappling techniques, Aikido, where you're joint locking the person, you take his wrist and boom, the guy goes flipping the other way. The same thing with apologetic methodology, okay? Um, My version of, of apologetics is not so much throwing the punch, throwing the punch, throwing the punch, my apologetic, um, presuppositional apologetic, is the type of defense that tries to remove the foundation from the opponent. Does that make sense? So instead yeah. of instead of blocking a punch here, blocking a punch there, I'm grabbing his feet and just taking it out from underneath him, right, and putting him in a submission move. Mm-hmm. All right. So it's a kind of a different a different approach um, because when you take, for example, I mean, there's a school of apologetics known as evidentialism or classicalism. Um, they are a family of methodologies. They're very related to each other, although there's a difference between them. Let's take the classical method. The classical method of apologetics, which is the most popular method out there, takes a two-step approach in proving Christianity to be true. Okay, The first step is, uh, is to demonstrate the existence of a theistic God. Okay, 
And this is usually done through various arguments. And I'm going to use some more terminology here. And again, you have to understand that apologetics isn't new. I mean, there's a long history of intellectual thinkers within Christianity that they've constructed various complicated arguments that are used to um, provide a foundation and um, argumentation for the truth of certain things that we believe. And so within the classical methodology of, of apologetics, what they would do is two steps. Number one, demonstrate the existence of a theistic God, a personal God, creator of the cosmos. And they would do this using some arguments, some famous arguments that Christian philosophers have used throughout the past um, go under what are known as the traditional proofs, the cosmological argument for God's existence. God is the cause of the universe. You know, there are different versions of the cosmological argument. I'll give you one quick example. There is an argument known as the Kalam cosmological argument, which is championed by many Christian philosophers, the most popular of which is William Lane Craig. And the argument is very simple. It has three steps. It's in the form of, a, of an, a, what we call a deductive argument. Now, a deductive argument is an argument that has steps that, if true, a conclusion follows logically and necessarily. Okay? And so this is part of what goes into how we prove something. Prove to me that God exists. Prove to me that, you know, um, that, you know some, some fact. You're going to have to give an argument for that. And so the Kalam cosmological argument comes in three steps. Step one. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Step two, the universe began to exist. Step three, therefore the universe has a cause. And so once you demonstrate the truth of the first two steps, then the conclusion follows necessarily. And then you ask the question, what does it mean to be the cause of the universe? What is the universe? Well, it consists of all time, space, matter, and energy. Well, whatever brought the universe into existence cannot have those properties itself. So matter does not bring matter into existence because matter began to exist, right? So it can't always exist. So you need a non-matter, a non an immaterial something to bring all of material reality into existence, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes people appeal to the Big Bang, you know, as, as a defense of that premise, you know, the Big Bang uh, at the singularity when the, when the universe bursted into existence, um, they would say that time itself came into existence. And so whatever brought the universe into existence has to be... Um, independent of time. So it's eternal. So you have an eternal, non-physical, powerful something that brought the universe. And you could see how the argument goes to demonstrate yeah. the existence of kind of a cause of the universe, right? A first cause. Um, and so the cosmological argument, classical apologists would use to demonstrate an uncaused cause of the universe. And that uncaused cause is God. God is eternal. He's not caused by anything outside himself, yet he is the cause of, of everything else. Okay. Um, classical apologists will use another argument known as the teleological argument, and that's the argument from design. And, and again, don't be frightened by these, this terminology. The average Christian is actually very familiar with these ideas. Um, things that exhibit design give evidence of a designer, right? And we kind of, you know, uh, in a very simplistic way, people say, well, how do you know God exists? In a very simplistic way, you know, you can tell your friend, well, look outside, man. You think this all came here on accident? That's a very very elementary basic way of giving what we would call a teleological argument right mm -hmm. looking at the what appears to be design in the world and dedu and and deducing the conclusion that well there must be a designer okay so the classical apologists will appeal to you know cosmological argument god's the first cause teleological argument god is the designer of the universe 
the moral argument, God is the foundation for these objective moral truths. You know, there really are things that are objectively good and objectively wrong. And God, you know, that those things point to God. And then after the existence of a theistic God is demonstrated, then they move into a more narrow scope of argumentation, which pertains to the resurrection of Jesus. Let's, let's put um, an identifier of this God we've demonstrated with these other arguments. Who is this God? And when you apply the existence of God to the issue of the resurrection of Jesus, they tend, they, the classical apologist provides a kind of a, a case with the existence of God established and the resurrection of God, a resurrection of Jesus put together, demonstrate the truth of Christianity. And so how is this different than say a presuppositional approach? Well, and this is the same, this is the difference between presuppositional apologetics, classical apologetics, Evidential apologetics, classical apologetics and evidential apologetics is a, is a bottom-up approach. I'm going to work my way up and argue to the conclusion God exists. You see? So, so the classicals will say, I'm going, to, I'm going to get to the conclusion God exists. Here's an argument for God's existence. Cosmological, teleological, moral argument, blah, 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 blah. Okay? How do I know it's the Christian God? Look at the evidence of the resurrection, right? And they'll talk about, you know, Jesus was crucified. We know that he was buried and the tomb was, you know, there's evidence that the tomb was found empty three days later. What's the best explanation for this? You take this together and you go to the conclusion. Therefore, Christianity is true, right? You follow so far? Okay. Presuppositional apologetics, which is the methodology that I hold to, is not a bottom-up approach. As, as a presuppositionalist, I'm not trying to get to the conclusion that God exists. My approach is a top-down approach. Hmm. I start with God, and I argue that if you don't start with God, you can't know anything at all. Knowledge is impossible. Proof itself would be impossible. Basically, my argument can be summarized like this. A presuppositionalist will argue like this. The proof for the truth of the Christian worldview is that if it were not true, you couldn't prove anything at all. Now that usually gets atheists like, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. I can prove all sorts of things. I don't believe in your God. I don't believe in your little sky daddy. You know how people, you know, you know. Yeah. Um, and what I'm saying as a presuppositionalist is actually a, um, a specific form of argumentation. Now, I didn't use the word because I don't want to scare people away with all this vocabulary. But basically what I just gave there is what we would call a transcendental argument, a transcendental argument. A transcendental argument tries to prove some fact by asking the question, what must be the case? What must be true in order for this thing to be true right here? I'll give you, I'll give you a sort of transcendental argument. Ready? I exist. Well, someone says, well, how do you know you exist? Well, I need to exist even to deny my existence. So if I affirm my existence, I must exist. And if I deny my existence, I must exist because there must be someone denying my existence. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's a kind of transcendental argument. I exist by the impossibility of the contrary. If I deny my existence, I prove my existence. If I affirm my existence, I, I prove my existence. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So a transcendental argument basically says the Christian worldview is true that even when you deny it, you have to affirm or presuppose various central truths of the very position itself. So even in denying it, you're proving it. What would okay? be some of the central truths that you're, you just mentioned? Yeah, well, that God, uh, that God exists and that he created man um, in his image, 
I'll give you an example. If you deny that, if you deny that God is the creator, that there is a God, let's take, for example, let's give an example, an easy example to follow. Let's suppose um, I'm in a discussion with an atheist and he's a particular flavor of atheism. Not all atheists um, believe the same thing, but he's a particular flavor of atheists. Let's say he is, I'm going to throw another philosophical term out here. Um, you don't need to know this term, but just let me throw it out so that you know what sort of atheist I'm talking about. Suppose this, this atheist is a metaphysical naturalist. He believes that all that exists, this is what, and that's just fancy for this. All that exists is matter in motion. Only the physical realm exists. There's no spiritual, there's no immaterial realities. Everything is all natural, baby, right? He believes everything is, is matter. I don't have a mind. I have a brain. My brain and my mind, they're the same, you know? So if you are a metaphysical naturalist, kind of atheist, again, you don't need to use these terms, but if you're that sort, and I'm a Christian, I'll say, well, wait a minute. You have to assume truths of my perspective to even argue your perspective. Oh, well, what do you mean? So, Mr. Atheist, let's see how consistent you are with your worldview. And this has actually been a real discussion I had. You believe that all reality is matter in motion? He says, yes. Do you have logical arguments for that position? They're like, of course. Oh, so you believe in logic? He's like, yeah. All right. And all reality is physical? He's like, yep. So show me logic. Where does it exist? Show me. He's like, well, well, well logic isn't physical. Ah, so it's not physical. He's like, yeah, logic is conceptual or it's abstract. I'm like, but I thought all that exists is the physical world. You see, now he's, now he's in a real dilemma at this point. He either denies what he just said and says, well, wait a minute, logic is physical. It's a, it's a, a functioning of the human brain. Then he jumps into my hands because there's huge problems with that. Right. Or he affirms that they're not physical, but then now he has to account for these universal, conceptual, logical laws. How do you account in an atheistic worldview, universal, conceptual laws? If it's conceptual, where do concepts exist? Where? Cricket, cricket, cricket. <laughs> they exist. Is it not the case that concepts exist in minds? Yeah. And if logic is universal, a universal concept, wouldn't it make sense that logic would then exist in a universal mind, a mind that is everywhere and imposes that pattern of thinking upon wait, everything else? Wait, wait, now you're making my argument weird, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you see what I'm saying? So that in his very denial of my God, who is the grounding of logic, he has to assume logic that doesn't make sense in his own perspective, yet only makes sense in my perspective. Mm. and so, so that's as, what you uh, mean by the the idea of like the impossibility of the contrary like that's right so if someone says prove to me logic exists well it exists by the impossibility of the contrary if i deny logic i have to assume logic because language itself assumes logical rules mm. right otherwise i wouldn't i'd just be blabbing gibberish at you right now you, you right. see what i'm saying yeah. So, um, and this is what Cornelius Van Til, who is considered the father of the presuppositional method said, he, he described what the unbeliever does when the unbeliever professes his unbelief with his mouth, but doesn't live that way in his heart, right? Mm. He, he compared the unbeliever as a child sitting on the lap of his father and slapping his father in the face. The only way the child was able to reach the father's face is if the child was already sitting on the father's lap. And basically, that's what every unbeliever is doing. 
They're sitting on the lap of God, using his resources that he's given them, using logic, using science, using philosophical categories and all the wonderful things that we're able to do. And they're using that while sitting on God's lap and slapping him in the face by denying his existence. The problem is you need to be on his lap to slap his face. And so my job as the Christian defender is to show actually the God you're denying with your mouth, you know this God, because you're presupposing things that only make sense if he exists, mm. right? And what you're doing is what Romans chapter one says, you're suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness. You know this God and you will be held accountable before that God. I've heard that come out of your mouth before, Nate, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Yeah, well, that would be an application of that biblical principle. And you don't always have to quote the Bible when you're talking to the unbeliever, but it is useful to show that, you know, in your denial, Mr. Atheist, and the fact that you're now being inconsistent and assuming elements of my worldview, the Bible actually predicts you'll do that. <laughs> so that's kind of an indirect, you know, oh. your denial of my God is actually indirect evidence for, for my God. Yeah, wasn't that something uh, Greg Bonson said in his debate with, uh, was it Tim Stein or? Gordon Stein. Gordon Stein. Uh, when he's, you know, Greg Bonson said something to the, to the effect of, oh, you know, I'm glad you came because you by coming to this debate is this proven my God does exist or something like that. Right. You're, you're, yeah. you're coming to the debate proves that you don't believe what you say you believe because Gordon Stein <laughs> was a, an atheist. He didn't believe um, uh, he's saying, you know, these immaterial things don't exist. Um, but here he is debating, presupposing these very immaterial things that he says can't exist. And like a material setting yeah exactly now now suppose the atheist says well logic is a product of the physical universe right or logic is just a fun is a brain function well the problem with that is that the physical um physical things are always undergoing change isn't that true even your physical body i mean uh you go like every 10 years they say something to the effect that all your cells have been recycled so Physically, you're not even the same person you were, you know, you know, moments before or years before, whatever. Now, if universe, if these laws of logic are grounded in material materiality, which is in constant, cha constantly changing, then why think these logical laws must stay the same? If they're grounded in that which changes, couldn't the laws of logic change? And I like if the laws of, and, and like if the laws, I'm sorry. I said I like this guy, Nate. He is really bringing all that stuff. <laughs> He's a smart guy, I like that. But but if the laws of logic change, then what prevents me from using different laws of logic than you are? You yeah. can't tell me I'm wrong. You can't say, well, what you're saying, Eli, is illogical. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm using my logic. My logic is different than yours. Mine has evolved better, right? And yeah. so I can I can say things that are contradictory. And so if you allow me to do that, knowledge about anything would be impossible because I can contradict you and you couldn't object. Mm. Do you see the problem? And I've actually had some atheists say, well, that's right, knowledge is impossible. We're just kind of, this is a crapshoot. To which then I ask, if knowledge is impossible, how do you know knowledge is impossible? <laughs> to know that knowledge is impossible is itself to affirm knowledge, you see? So you don't have to be super smart or super genius. I mean, Greg Bonson says, sometimes you just need to let the unbeliever talk and he'll give you all the rope you need to hang him with. And I don't mean to use that in kind of violent terms, but that's just a kind of a derogatory way of saying that unbelieving philosophy strangles itself. And your job is to just be mindful and intentional and just better at exposing 
the folly of unbelief. And the Bible does call it foolishness. And then, you know, I'm not going to walk up to the unbeliever and say, you're a fool. But we do need to remember the Bible does say that when you deny God, that's what you're left with. You are left with foolishness. Now, of course, there are some atheists who don't hold to the kind of atheism that I just expressed there. And, you know, they'll have answers to certain things. But ultimately, when you get to the foundation, there really is nothing there that the Christian should worry about. And we should just try our best to do a better job in exposing the weaknesses in their position and um, also be prepared in responding to the objections that the unbeliever brings. I mean, Jude chapter one says that we are to con earnestly contest for the faith once for all delivered. So we are contending, we are defending Christian truth, and we are unable to do that effectively if we don't know Christian truth. And so one of the key things in being a good defender of the faith and just a solid Christian is to know your theology, to know what the Bible teaches, right? And we should know that just from a practical perspective, even if you never come in contact with an unbeliever, you should know what the Bible teaches, because what the Bible teaches will affect how we live our lives. You see a lot of problems in churches today, and a lot of pastors and the preaching that they get they give, is that they're very focused on the practical. Here's how we, you know, make practical application. But they give practical application without setting the foundation out of which that practicality comes from. And so we're doing a bunch of things that are practical, but we have no idea why we do them or how they're even related to my belief in God and the, what the Bible says. What we need to do is lay that foundation, know your doctrine, know your theology, and then you'll see how beautifully the practical elements of life and how we can live and honor God, how all of that flows from the truth that God has laid down for us in the Bible. And I think that's a super important thing to keep in mind, even if you're never, you never engage in apologetics, just to be a consistent Christian. I think that's a very important thing um, to keep in mind. Yeah, that's super helpful to always keep in mind that, you know, before you can be practical, right, you need to understand what you're being practical about, right? So right. like, if I'm told I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, well, I need to know what that means, right? I need to get into the scriptures to understand what that means. What's that, what's that look like? Okay. Is that, oh, I got to make Christ Lord of every area of my life. And that includes what I do on the weekends. And that includes what I do after work. And that includes what I do with my, my daily habits or, you know, whatever it is that it, it, it loving God with all your heart means, you know, loving him with your whole, you know, as I mentioned, our whole mind and our desires and our will, like it's, it's right. loving him in, in completeness and not right. in just half-hearted commitments. Right. I think that's great that you pointed that out. Um, so yeah, now, well, Dallas, what do you got? You got anything to say so far? Huh? Well, I actually was holding something there and I was like, uh, and then I kind of lost her a little bit because I was listening to you talking. I was like, pay attention, you know, just pay attention. <laughs> I have your question there. But uh, hold on, it'll come to me. Okay. I'll think of it, you know, I'll think Feel of free. it. Yeah. Oh, well, okay, well, basically mine was, you know, you're basically like start, you know, with the Bible. The best thing to do is start in the word, but that is so hard, you know, honestly, as speaking from my point of view, I am spastic. You know, it's very hard for me to sit down and read things. And like, I know that's a growing thing I have to go through and that's very important. I need to get into that, but like, starting it out, you know, every time I start the Bible, it's like, oh, I'll start at the beginning. You know how many times I've read Genesis? Like, I've read Genesis a lot of times. <laughs> because I'm like, you know what, God, I'm doing it this time. I'm going to come through and I'm going to start reading this. But it's so hard to get through 
the chronological dates of people's, you know, ancestors and all this, when you're like, oh, God, I'm just trying to find like, I'm trying to find a stronghold here. I'm trying to find a little grab on something, you know? That's yeah, big. I think that I think that's fair. Um, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I struggle reading as well. Um, I, I mean, I can read. I know how to read. <laughs> um, but I do have trouble focusing. And so the 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 main way that I learn is through audio. Listening to it. I either listen to the Bible or I find a good teacher who's teaching through the Bible. And it's just I'm listening to it and I listen to it all the time on my way to work, on my way back from work, when I'm going for a walk, when I'm doing something that I don't my full attention is not required. I'm listening to it so that the Bible, whether if it's an audio form, whatever the Bible or good sermons about the Bible become the background music of my mind. Yeah. It's kind of just like you're listening to a song, you know, for God so loved the world. World, you see, because it's so, it's so overset, it's overused. We kind of know it. It's taking those items that are difficult and rehearsing them until they, you know, they become the background music of your life. And, and it doesn't matter if you don't understand it. I have a friend who um, he says that he wakes up early in the morning and he reads the scriptures and he's like, I, I, sometimes I don't even know what I'm reading, but he says, but I have to have it in me. I have to have it in me. Um, and I think that's a good mentality to have. Like, you're not going to understand everything. I don't understand everything when I read. Um, even in Genesis, there are certain things that I don't understand, but to have the word in you puts you in a good position to learn it later and that learning later comes within the context of healthy teaching you know sitting under someone who's teaching the word of god faithfully and even just silent reflection there are some biblical truths that came to me as i was driving it just happened to be something i was thinking about i was like oh wow well that makes so much sense you know get the word in you first now if you know the word can get in you in, in any number of ways you can read it and if that's if that's too hard then you can listen to it right um, and you're not going to understand everything. And that's not a deficiency in you because there are experts who read the, the Bible and they'll admit it's a lot of work on some parts. So don't beat yourself up and say, well, it's really hard for me to do this. Well, cool. Who said it was going to be easy? Even, even, even the apostle Peter said of Paul's writing that many distort his thinking because there are there, uh, his, his writings because there are many difficult things that he writes. So even the apostle Peter says, yeah. It's difficult, right? <laughs> but notice what, um, what was your name again? Dallas, was it? Dallas, yeah. Okay. Dallas says it's really hard, but notice what he didn't say. He didn't say it was impossible. And the fact that it was hard, oh. that it's hard is we, something we could all agree on. I could have uttered the same words you just uttered if, they, if the question was posed to me. I would say it's so hard. I've read Genesis 50,000 times and I've never gotten through Genesis, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, big whoop. You know, get a get a tissue, right? Look, our poor little <laughs> souls, we struggle with it's like I struggle so much just remembering. Dallas, what are the first three numbers of your phone number? Yeah, I know that's pretty easy to remember. It feels yeah. like your address, I'm a teacher. People will say, Well, listen, I, I can't do all this stuff because I can't I can't remember stuff. I have a bad memory. That's that's to be perfectly that's BS. When, yeah. when, my, when my students say this, I can't remember so, such and such. I'll say like, what did you say? Well, I can't remember. No, what did you say? Well, I have difficulty remembering. It's like, what did you say? So you're, so you're telling me in perfect English with words that you can't remember uh, very well. 
how did you remember everything required to construct your sentence and communicate with me? How yeah. did you learn language? Well, hello, you learn language through repetition. Didn't you? From grade school, you learned repetition. Why all of a sudden, when we're reading the Bible, repetition goes out the window and we give up after a couple of tries? You see? Repetition, repetition, repetition. If a, if a first century Hebrew boy can memorize an entire book of the Bible, then with some work, we can memorize a couple of verses. You yeah. see, the problem is in our modern day, we are visual. We are a visual culture. In, in Jesus' day, they were an, an oral culture and an audio culture. They would speak and they would listen. So they memorized things to heart because that was the only way they could they can keep their family line. You know, if, if I say, Dallas, What's your grandfather's name? Fred. Fred? Yeah. And what's his father's name? I uh, yeah, my lineage drops off there. Yeah. <laughs> you see, now 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 the reason why a Hebrew in biblical times could memorize his family back to Adam, <laughs> okay, is because his family line was important to his own identity. Mm. But because we don't care about family lines today, we don't make a big deal of memorizing who my grandfather's father was. You see what I'm saying? So we tend to memorize better the things that we find important. important. So, yeah. so perhaps my advice to you, Dallas, is to take a long walk, clear your mind, and evaluate and ask yourself this question, how important is it for me to know the scriptures? And be honest with yourself. How old are you? 32. 32. You graduated high school, unless you dropped out at ninth grade. I don't know who you are. Oh, Did you, got, you, you graduated high school. That means, what's your weakest subject? Oh, it would definitely be uh, writing, literature, English, that kind of okay. stuff. Yet, here you are, graduated high school. And you can't even escape by saying, well, I got a 65. I barely made it. But you made it. You did what was required to get that stinking certificate on graduation day. So now you need to think in terms of the Bible, you know, I want to get my certificate, you know, my hypothetical certificate. What must I do? You know, what must I do to get to know the Bible enough that I'm able to hide it in my heart, apply it to my life, share it with others, know the goal that's set before you and get it done because in every other sphere of life, you've gotten it done because here you are. And so we need to, we need to be easy on ourselves and say, yeah, it's going to be hard. I'm not good at it. And I don't have to do it. You don't have to read the Bible and get it done by the end of the semester. I mean, this is a lifelong journey. And so, you know, get a couple of books, you know, read a paragraph. Don't try to read, don't try to read a whole book, read a paragraph here, paragraph there, you know, here, a paragraph, there, a paragraph, mark it up, mark your Bible, up. read your Bible with a pencil in your hand. Or when you read something, you'd be like, what the heck? You know, in the book of Leviticus, it says, don't boil, don't boil a calf in its mother's milk. What the heck does that mean? That's a weird law. You write it down, look into it. When, yeah, when you're, when you're chilling in front of your computer, take the, some questions you wrote while studying your Bible and look it up and it's little by little. And believe it or not, God is going to put you in circumstances in which um, other people who are asking similar questions, you're going to be able to provide an answer to them. And you're going to provide that answer, not even knowing how the heck I'm like, wait a minute. I totally read that the other day. And then you'll have something to say about it. You see? So it's that coupled with this, and then I'll be quiet and you can ask another question if you have. You also want to understand this, that when you're reading the Bible, it is not simply an intellectual endeavor. That, that's the thing. It's like, well, I have trouble here, or I'm not a smart person, or I have to, 
you're already coming from, you're already coming to the task of reading the Bible in an unbiblical way because you are trusting in your own mental capacities to do it. The Bible says that we also must lean on the Lord. So your Bible reading needs to be tethered with a consistent prayer life, always acknowledging God's hand, even in your reading of God's word. Well, a lot of that, yeah, I'd always be like, I'd be reading through it and trying to understand stuff. And I'm like, Lord, you know, where I am weak, it says you are strong. And this stuff, obviously, I think I should do better at it, you know, because sure. my strength isn't anything compared to yours. So the things I'm doing well, through my weakness, you should be able to do this better, almost in a way. Like, but yeah, I have been, I would say my problem is my passion. I don't know what it is. I'm lost in life in a certain way that like passion has gone on for a lot of things. So sure. it's like finding that passion to be drawn to it. Like I am almost like in the unemotional way that I am. It's like heartbreaking that I don't feel this draw, that I don't feel. But, but, but Dallas, I, I'm supposed to be the Bible guy, right? Right. Yeah. Like you're the Bible guy. You lie. Like, yeah, we've invited you on the show here to talk about stuff like that. <laughs> But I feel that way sometimes too. Like I don't always have a passion to, to, you know, to, I don't have a passion to exercise, but yeah. how am I going to get, how am I going to lose my belly fat? Well, I'm going to man up and I'm going to do the sit-ups and not eat the donut. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've been realizing that feelings really aren't what you can run this whole show on, you know? Right. Right. Feelings have been, I would say my biggest downfall in mm -hmm. all this. You need to plow through those dry moments. That's what it is. You recognize, well, I don't have passion. You need to, it doesn't matter if you have passion. There's nothing in the Bible that says you only read the Bible when you have passion or you have to have passion for this, that. No, it's Bible study is a discipline. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not, it literally, there is a book out that I read, I had to read when I was in seminary. It was literally like the biblical disciplines. And one of it was Bible study. It's a discipline. No one enjoys doing things they need to be disciplined for. You know what I mean? So don't, don't put your, don't put yourself down for your lack of passion. That's, that's actually quite normal for a lot. Of, not every, not the average, the average believer doesn't have a passion for the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a couple of weirdos out there that, you know, like I, I am passionate. I don't always feel passionate, but I am passionate in the Bible. That's something that God has graced me with, but you know what? Paul spoke of a thorn in his side that he had that he prayed that God would get rid of. And God says, Nope, you're going to stay with it because in your weakness, um, my strength is, my strength is seen all the more. Perhaps your lack of passion for the Bible is your thorn and that you need to rely more on God and say, God, I don't have a passion for your word, but please give me a passion. And you continue to pray and pray and pray and pray. And as the Bible says, even if you don't understand Genesis, you definitely understand this. If you knock, the door will be open. <laughs> okay. Keep knocking. God, I need passion. I need passion. And let that be the cry of your heart every single day. And keep reading your Bible. And if you never get that passion, keep reading your Bible. Doesn't matter. And when you say keep reading my Bible, should I just start at Genesis? Because no, don't start at Genesis. <laughs> yeah, please uh, help me out with that. Yeah. Well, here's here's the thing. When you pop your head into the Old Testament, you are popping your head into a world that is very, very different than anything you've ever known. Okay, there's some weird stuff there because it happened so long ago. Now, you can start in Genesis if you'd like. I mean, obviously, it's the word of God. You're still going to benefit when reading the stories and things like that. But when students come up to me and ask me, where should I start reading the Bible? Um, what I like to suggest, there's no exact rule to this, but what I like to suggest is either start in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. Okay. I mean, you love Jesus, get some Jesus into you. 
Now, of course, the entire Bible is about Jesus. The, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it's they that speak of me. I get that just in case someone asks and says, you know, they watch the video, they're like, wait a minute, you know, the Bible is a whole lot. Yes, I get it. I get it. But um, read the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. And here's the reason why. Okay. The Gospel of Mark, I like to sarcastically say, is the gospel for those who don't like to read. Uh, the reason is exactly because yeah. it is the yeah. shortest gospel. It's the shortest. And it's written in such a way that um, the, the narrative moves very quickly. And, and do it. If you have a pen, a pen or a pencil when you're reading it, circle the amount of times the word immediately appears in the gospel of Mark. And immediately he was driven into the wilderness. And immediately, it, the narrative is very quick. It's like the cliff notes for the Bible version for us. Yeah. yeah. So, so when you read through the gospel of Mark, it's a quick read. And at the same time, you're getting a nice overview of the ministry and life of Jesus. And of course, the, all of the key elements. So if you want to get a quick kind of like move, and if you conquer Mark and you can do it in a relatively short amount of time, yeah, pat yourself on the back and be like, I got through Mark. Let me try Let me try the gospel of John. You know, it moves quicker. Now, why the gospel of John? Well, here's, here's an interesting thing. Here's some background on the Gospels, okay? The Gospels were written to a specific audience. Some people believe that Mark was written to the Romans, a Roman audience. And um, the reason being, there are many reasons, but one reason is that R Roman people tend to be people of action. They were very gung-ho about things, right? A Roman is, you know, they're, they're disciplined, they're moving. They like power. They like authority. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is his ministry is characterized by authority. I mean, when he's when he's casting out demons and the things that he's teaching, even the people in the synagogue, they said, "Who is this guy who's, who teaches with such authority?" That appealed very much to a Roman audience, and so people think that the Gospel of Mark was written to a Roman audience. Now, the Gospel of Luke, out of all the Gospels, has the most parables in it. These stories that make you think, you know. Many people think that the Gospel of Luke was written to a predominantly Greek audience, but more specifically, it was written to an individual. Um, his name was Theophilus, which it was Greek, right? Um, the Gospel of Matthew, many people believe, was written to a Jewish audience. And the reason for that is that in the Gospel of Matthew, you, you have a lot of phrases like this, so that the word of the Lord was fulfilled. It appeals to prophecy, and a Jewish audience would have been more familiar with prophecy. Now, the Gospel of John many people believe was written to a general audience. Okay, now, of course, it's written to a specific group of people, but it's more general and it highlights not so much what Jesus did, although that's important, but it highlights who Jesus is, right? In the gospel of Matthew, you have the genealogies, that wonderful list of this person begat that person, that person begat that person, that, you know, the, the sort of things you like to read before you go to sleep, right? Um, and then in the gospel of Luke, you have the genealogy, right? But notice in the gospel of John, it doesn't try to connect Jesus to any human lineage. It cuts right to the chase. It's not, and this is how things started. And this person began, no, gospel of John says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. In John 1, 14, the word became flesh. The gospel of John focuses on the who Jesus really is. And I think that's a very powerful place to start if you don't know where to read in the Bible, right? I want to encounter Jesus face-to-face. -face. Who is this Jesus? The Gospel of John, I think, captures that in a way that the other Gospels, they do, but not with the thrust that the Gospel of John does. So I would say the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John, and then after those, read the book of Acts.
that's gonna be my uh, that's gonna be my lesson plan. <clears throat> I'm taking it, Mark John to Acts. I'm gonna and listen. you're gonna love the God the Book of Acts. The Book of Acts is meant to be a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. It's written by the same person. Yeah, he, he wrote to Theophilus to tell him about Jesus, and then he writes to Theophilus again to unfold the events that happened after Jesus ascended to heaven. And you see the growth of the church. And dude, if you read through Acts, their stories, you're like, oh, I know that story. There are actually little nuggets. You'd be like, oh, snap. Like, I never even knew that. Like, it's actually pretty cool. That happened to me. I was reading something. Uh, um, Paul, in the book of Acts, Paul was um, teaching uh, on like the top floor of a, of a building. And a young man was sitting on, on the windows in the book of Acts. A young man was listening and he fell asleep. Well, well, Paul, imagine falling, imagine the apostle Paul doing a Bible study at your house and you fall asleep. You don't want to be that guy, right? I mean, he's yeah. the great apostle Paul. Yet this young man fell asleep and falls out the window to his death. That's in the book of Acts. He falls out the window to his death. He dies. He dies. And Paul goes downstairs, brings this man back to life and goes back upstairs and continues preaching throughout the night. <laughs> I mean, you're going to see little things in the, in the book of Acts. And, and these are just little accounts like, oh, this is an interesting story. That's really cool. But all throughout the historical events that you're reading in the, in the book of Acts, what you see in these events, these human events, you see, and this, it's almost like this, this looming presence of the invisible hand of God moving the narrative along. It's pretty cool. It, it, you could almost call the book of Acts the gospel of the Holy Spirit. Because yeah. you, you really see the work of the spirit moving in the early church. And it's kind of cool when you have that kind of overarching presence of the work of the spirit throughout these specific historical narratives that you're reading. So I would say the gospel of Mark, gospel of John, the book of Acts, and then from there, tackle some of the, the shorter letters, you know, start with the short stuff. You don't, I want to start reading the Bible. Let me read Genesis with 50 freaking chapters. Like, come on. Like, I'd always open the book and be like, well, this is the beginning, you know? So I don't know. I mean, yeah. start. that's like the overweight person who's, he's like really overweight. He's like, I need to get in shape. Let me start insanity, you know, like the insanity program. I'll just like, you have a heart attack, you know? Um, here's one thing that I, I heard a teacher say once they said, you know, uh, this is a good way to kind of you know, how do you tackle something like the Bible? And they said something to the effect of, how do you eat an elephant? That's a weird question. How do you eat an elephant? Um, you know, I asked, well, how do you eat an elephant? I don't know. The person said, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Yeah. That's it. All right. The Bible's an elephant. It's huge. There's a lot. You're never even, you're never going to plumb the depths of scripture. Never. You're not going to ever know all of it, whatever, but one bite at a time, one step at a time line by line, paragraph here, paragraph there. Eventually, it's going to start sticking, okay? The reason why I, when I teach, I give lots of information. You know, when we talked about naturalistic atheism, I said, in the logic, I go, and I, and I do them for shock value. Usually people say, oh, wow, that was a really cool point. I like to overflow with information because I know that you're not going to remember all of it, but certain things will stick. Mission accomplished. Live in the scriptures. Couple that with prayer of God guiding you with his spirit. Things will stick and they will stick in ways you never, you never thought. I think it was Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous Baptist preacher. He says uh, he was, he was known for reading many books. Um, he says, this is a really cool quote. He says, read many books, but, or, or yeah, read many books or visit many books, but live in the scriptures, live in the scriptures, allow the Bible to be a place that you live. Right. I don't just read the Bible. I read the Bible. 
Uh, you, you, there's a lowercase read. Eh, I'm going to sit and read the Bible. You know, all right, I'm done. Or read the Bible. I have my pen in my hand. This is a treasure trove of God's revelation. And I don't care if it's a nugget of gold that I find. I'm going to find one freaking nugget of gold. If it's just one, that's good. And I'm going to dig into this. And you need to, you need to learn. Uh, and this, is, this will help you capture a passion, I think. You need to learn to um, see God's word for what it truly is. You need to learn to stand in awe of what the Bible is. The problem with the Bible is that everyone has one. We take it for granted. They even have them in prison cells, you know. Prison cells, hotel rooms. In hotel rooms, yep. Oh, you got it. But to really hold the Bible in your hand, believing it to be God's inspired word, and knowing that when you open the scriptures, you are confronting the very face of God. If, If that is truly and genuinely imprinted upon your heart every time you open your Bible, you're gonna see yourself being a little bit more passionate about it because the weightiness of its importance is impressed upon your heart. Learn the weightiness of it. Come to grips and stand in awe of it, and that will change your perspective. It really would. I mean, it definitely has for me. I mean, I don't always read the Bible as much as I should, but um, a lot of that's due because I've just, I mean, I have kids. It's very busy. I only get to do it late at night, but um, I do stand in awe of the Bible. It is God's word. Like the creator of the cosmos, the one who said in the beginning, that spoke all everything into, into the universe. That's the same God who inspired these words. It's the same God who lives in me. It's the same God who desires me to seek him with all my heart. It's the same God. It's not fake. It's not a figment of my imagination. That God is the one who created me. I'm creating his image and he's given me this word. I want to confront this word and get what I can get from it. Right. And so you need to learn to stand in awe of what the Bible actually is and not take it for granted, which I think so many people have. And, in, and with respect to apologetics, people ask me, uh, Eli, what's the best apologetics book to read? You know? <laughs> and people think people think I'm gonna you know respond with well, you should check the uh, you know William Lane Craig's uh, reasonable faith or some like philosophical text that teaches you logic. And to be perfectly honest, um, I almost never suggest those books. Um, not that they're bad. I mean, you learn a lot from them, and I've read many of them. Um, and I encourage other people to read. But the best book to be a good defender of the faith to read is the Bible itself. I mean, think about it. Is it is it not the case? that the majority of attacks upon the Bible are based upon misconceptions of the Bible. Yeah. The majority of attacks upon the person of Christ and, and God himself are based upon misunderstandings. Your God can do every, anything, right? No. You see, they come from a place of misunderstanding. So to know the word of God, to know what it says about Jesus, to know what it says about salvation, to know what it says about the things that it, that it speaks of is to equip yourself, Right to equip yourself to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And so that, that can be done by the average believer. You don't have to be a scholar. You know, how are we saved? You know, we're saved by faith, by grace through faith, which Bible verses, you know, give a couple of Bible verses that, that concept will help you do apologetics against every cult that affirms the Bible, but distorts its doctrine of salvation, right? Salvation by grace through faith alone helps me combat Roman Catholics Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, and any other group that piggybacks on the Bible. And it is an encouragement to me to know that I'm saved by grace through faith. So even if I'm not defending the faith, I am encouraged and I have overcome many an obstacle through the knowledge of the fact that I am not saved, made right before God by what I do, but rather by what he's done.
You see? So learning this stuff is not simply to defend the faith. It also is an encouragement and it is spiritually enriching to, to ourselves. So it's very important. That's awesome. Yeah, this is, I really like the direction this has been going. It's been super awesome. I'm glad that Dallas, you came on because you can bring about things that maybe me or Eli would miss, you know, or maybe things that we would overlook because we're not thinking on them like that more practical, like where you're at, like, you're just like, okay, like I'm a Christian now. Like, what, what do I do? Like, how do I, where do I start reading? What do I read? How do I read? How do I pray? You know? And like, how do I stop wasting all my time playing rocket league? Yeah, And, <laughs> and like I do sometimes, most of the time, but, um, how do I, I, I have a, I'm a gamer too, man. I, oh, I, have yeah? the, I have my PlayStations over there. I got an Xbox. I just downloaded Final Fantasy on my phone. I'm, I'm a huge gamer too. And all the way to Final Fantasy on the phone. That is gamer. That is definitely right. gamer. Yeah. Yeah. Dallas just got me into this strange game, like probably 45 minutes before this time together. And it's like this, what is it? Dallas? It's some app on a phone where you play your, that crane game where you get stuffed animals well you do it on your phone and they actually send you the gifts that you win that's so if you cool. win like a little pig or like a little donkey a little pig chain come on your front door they send it to you yeah that's awesome but that uh man yeah hey hey but seriously dallas what i would highly recommend is bible reading obviously but listen to solid sermons like listen to people preach through the books you're reading. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm reading the gospel of Mark, you know, look up uh, an RC Sproul sermon on the gospel of Mark and see what you latch onto. Well, like, this is what I read and look, here's what he's saying. Look, there's an insight that I didn't catch, you yes. know, and just read it. I need that guy's name on a list after this in the link. I'll get you hooked up. <laughs> sure, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. Let me put in the chat just, um, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to bombard you. Yeah. I, I, I highly recommend John MacArthur sermons. Mm -hmm. Never. Uh, I'm so see and getting something here. Like getting he's up. a beast at verse Check by Check out verse. some John Piper. I like John Piper's sermons. RC Sproul. Yeah, John Piper <laughs> will be your uh passion, passion helper. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there are a lot of man. people, yeah. but um John MacArthur has an app, the Grace to You app. Just download the app and listen to it. He's got like series, like entire books of the Bible. Uh, John Piper's got a bunch of series, you know, mm -hmm. to be an apologist, you don't always have to just read apologetic stuff, like learn your Bible. And yeah, then right. when you hear people say stuff against it, then you make some application when necessary. This will definitely help though, because I mean, I listen to a lot of music. Music is pretty much all I listen to. And recently I've just been like, I can't listen to this crap. Like all this <laughs> stuff that they're telling me, I'm like, I, I wouldn't want my kids hearing this. I don't want these other impressionable people hearing this. So it's like, I don't want to listen to it anymore. You know, it is sure. still what I've enjoyed, you know, but I'm trying to separate myself from where it's just negativity constantly going in to like, so if I can get some of these podcasts and stuff, that will definitely, will make and that, and dude, 90% of what I've learned is through listening. Yeah. So, so it's not like these books are just because it's either this or a white background. I needed a background. So my the books, books are there. Look good. The books. I've read a little bit of all of them over the years, but for the most part, I learned through audio sermons for apologetics i like to listen to debates i like to listen to lectures on some apologetic topics um you know i listen to greg bonson you know i've listened to rc sproul and you listen to teachings and you know what's the evidence for the bible listen to like a 
a half hour, you know, lecture or like an hour lecture on what's the evidence of the Bible, you know, and, and through doing that, making that the normal practice of what you listen to, as I said before, it becomes the background music of your mind. It's just eventually going to be like, oh, wait a minute. You know, someone will say, well, you know, how can we trust what the Bible really says? It's been translated so many different times. And I heard you're going to remember, you're going to remember the answer and be like, oh, wait a minute. That's not how, that's not how the Bible works. That's not how the Bible, it, it's not translated from the original language to another language, to another language, to that's not how it works. It's, it's translated from original language to another language, original language to another language, original language. There's only one step. Yeah. So it's not this whole game of telephone. Now, when you memorize that, you hear, you know, the lecture that you were listening to. And when it comes up in conversation, you're like, actually, that's not, that's not how it goes. And you don't have to be an expert, but you know enough that you can speak to that. Maybe it's a friend or you're out to dinner and someone brings up, you know, the problem of evil, you know, how can a good God allow evil in the world? You know, you might remember a response right on the spot and you'd be able to share at that point. So, you know, it's a little here, a little there. You are wonderful. Thank you for your knowledge. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you're saying I'm like, man, this is really actually hitting in my brain. And it's like, oh, that this is a easy understanding of the way I need to look about this problem I have of going about this. Yeah, well, and I think. Well, that's what, awesome. What's also super exciting, too, about the whole process, Dallas, even for me, you know, what I've been a Christian for eight years now is like you never stop growing. Like it's, and it's like this captivating, beautiful story of being in relationship with God through the bad times and good times. And what's also so exciting too, is just knowing every time that you do listen to something or read something, you know, that it's not gonna not help you. Like, you know, it's gonna somewhere down the road, whether it's in the moment or a week from there or a year from there, you know, it's going to stick. And it's going to pop up when God needs that truth to hit home for you. And, you know, whether it's a season of depression or a season of doubt, um, or it's a season of joy, uh, whatever the case, but constantly, you know, you're, what you're feeding yourself is what's going to start developing. Like Eli's talking about is like that worldview, like your world, the way you're seeing yourself and God and others will start changing because of the word of God. And because of what you're listening to, it starts changing your, your worldview about how you view everything. Well, that was basically like that. I can't remember who sent that. It was Chris, somebody, I think somebody sent, my mom sent me a podcast that was basically about your, uh, what would they say that your lens, basically your world lens, because everything in your life has led you to the conclusions that you come to, you know, every experience you've had, everything. So you're looking through this fog glass, trying to find reality. And it's like, that's why most people are lost. I feel like, you know, that's why I feel half lost half the time because my view of world and my view of situations is, I feel like so far skewed from what God actually has for me to see in that situation that you know a lot of the time it's like that's why i'm working on that renewed mind thing you know mm -hmm. oh lord renew my mind well, rc sproul has a podcast renewing your mind around you want to download the ligonier app let me and uh, you say ligonier. it and for the listeners too i'll make sure that i add all this in the description of this episode as well so yeah. the hearers out there get it as well. You app, okay, very good. 
you know, and there's so much stuff there. If you want to get like a nice seminary education for free and learn like the history of the Old Testament and things like that, um, Reformed Theological Seminary has an app. It's the RTS app. And you can actually take courses from legit professors that cover the history of the Old Testament, the history of the New Testament, theology. And that's another way to learn. It's free. You yeah, know? I, I actually use that quite often that's actually how i found james anderson and kind of found presuppositional apologetics so yeah yeah, yeah. what's up the rts app is what you yep. said rts it stands for uh reformed theological seminary and there's literally scholars they really good teachers it's you know you can learn all about church history and stuff like super interesting and it's it's all free and endless i mean you could listen to it for yeah you know, i listened amazing. to a whole course on the history of christian philosophy and thought i mean it's awesome yeah yeah then they i think they have them like with a legacy courses too so some of the, like the retired professors they still have their uh right their things out like john frame and some of yep. them other guys as well but super exciting stuff and um yeah this is great oh yes i just found the app nice <clears throat> <laughs> And it's good to be point. I mean, that's another thing too. We can talk about these things, you know, this is what you need to do. This is what you should do. It's, but a lot of people don't know where to go for some of those things, you know, mm -hmm. even reading the Bible. When I say like, Oh, you should read your Bible. And some people are just kind of like, like how every time <laughs> you say that, every time you say, read the Bible, it just, cause growing up, I mean, my, both my grandparents were missionaries. They always, they'd pay us basically. You get a hundred bucks if you read your Bible through for this year, you know, you can read it through as many times as you want, but you only get a hundred dollars. Yes. But like, so that was my, you know, Bible reading. I would go sure. through that like, but, and then I lost where I was going with that. Cause but, I, but, 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 you know, like when we say read your Bible, like, like you've expressed, we're like, well, where do I start? Not everyone knows how to read their Bible. Yeah. Or you need to pray more and be like, cool, but like, wow. Like <laughs> and I think, I think churches need to focus on those things too. Teaching people how to pray biblically and teaching people how to read the Bible. There's actually a book you might want to check out, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And it'll actually tell you like basic principles of interpreting the Bible you know, because there are rules too. You don't just read There's things you need to consider. There's going to be weird things you read in the Bible that if you don't know the style of the writing and things like that, then you're not going to really understand. So you might want to check out that book as well. How to read the Bible for all it's worth. I'll type it in the, uh, yeah. how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Now, if you find this overwhelming and you say, well, wait a minute, I can't listen to all these lectures and read this book, blah, 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 blah. You can type in how to read the Bible for all it's worth on YouTube, and there'll be a video that goes over the broad outlines of it, you know, so you don't have to sit and read a book. And there's so much stuff that you can get audio visual that covers these things and will be useful to you. Yeah, I might go with that. It might make it a little more, you know, looking at it, listening to it. Sure. Keep me brain involved. Yes, very good. <laughs> well, I think... That should probably wrap us up. I think we all got a lot from this and it's been very encouraging and we're so uh, grateful for you, Eli, and this time that you got to share with us and just kind of speak a lot of exciting things, especially for Dallas as a new uh, believer coming up in the faith. And then for all the listeners too, that get to hear this and realize, Hey, 
you're not alone in this. And this journey is not just for new believers, it's for believers that, you know, we're, we're constantly growing. We constantly need these things. So yeah, you got to get some basics of apologetics today. And you also got to get a lot of awesome, just wisdom and exciting things for practical ways to how we can grow in a relationship with God. And that plays the biggest role in apologetics is being rooted and grounded in God's revelation. So with that said, Eli, thank you so much. Maybe you could tell us how we could maybe find your, um, like, you know, I know you do some other things. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about Revealed Apologetics and um, how people can find you and follow you. Yeah, well, I have a website, revealedapologetics.com, and I have a blog on there. So I've, I've actually uploaded a bunch of articles there. So the articles um, are related to apologetics, defending the faith, but they're actually based upon questions that people send me. So if you read some of the articles, you'd be like, well, I really don't know where he's going with this sort of stuff. Email me a question at revealedapologetics at gmail.com, and I'll turn your question into an article, um, which is, you know, I love to do those sorts of things. So, you know, if you have any questions about, you know, how, do, how, do, how does one simplify these sorts of things, um, you know, send me a question, email me, and I'll, uh, I'll turn it into an article, and you can go and use that as a reference. I also teach online uh, course uh, where folks can sign up for on uh, revealedapologetics.com called PresupU. It's kind of an introduction slash, slash intermediate sort of level, um, but uh, it does go over the kind of apologetic approach that, that I teach, and so people can sign up for that. Um, there has been some confusion, though. When people look on the website, it looks like there's like a date where it's like, oh, well, it doesn't look like the class has started. Um, there are actually two versions of the class. So one is the basic version, where regardless of what the dates says there, you could just sign up and we send you the content, um, you know, uh, for a fee, of course. Um, we send you all the videos, all of the, um, the PowerPoint and outlines, and you could just work through the material on your own. In the near future, I'm going to make available the premium edition in which all of those things are included, but those who sign up will meet with me through Zoom once a week to talk about the course itself, and they could ask their questions. We can go much deeper, um, and so I'll let people know when I start doing that again, but this stuff is available now. If people want to sign up, that's PreceptU on my website, and of course, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, um, Revealed Apologetics, and I interview scholars that cover a wide range of topics from the resurrection of Jesus, what's the evidence, um, we did a recent episode with about homosexuality, um, just covering issues from practical Christian living to scholarly issues that are debated online and in scholarship and things like that. So it's definitely a good resource for people who want to dive deep into the topic of apologetics. And, and, and I apologize, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm actually uh, a traveling speaker. So you could actually invite me to your church and, um, you know, I go to your church and I give an apologetics workshop or something like that. I think I'm speaking at, a, at an event um, in Virginia uh, in November, October, November, and I'm speaking at a, uh, a, youth, a youth camp up in Pennsylvania. So people, you know, reach out to me and, and I also, um, you know, give lectures and teachings and workshops and Q&A sessions and things like that. So folks can reach out to me um, and email me if that's, if that's something they're interested in. Uh, interested in so that's revealed apologetics at gmail.com right and you said that information for that uh uh traveling that this where you're going to be a speaker at that event where do you say that uh where could someone find information for that again um well i was invited so they're not my events uh, okay. um but um 
I think one's in Virginia. I think I'll, I'll try to post it on, I think I have posted it on Facebook, the one in Virginia. Um, but uh, they're not my event. So I was invited to them. So I don't have the actual material except to share whatever they've shared with me on Facebook. But, you know, if anyone wants me to come, I, I travel across the state or, or to another state and I, uh, I teach. So that's what I do when I'm not uh, doing my other stuff. Yeah, I'll definitely convince my elders to get you back up in New York, except Buffalo, not Long Island. But Hey, I have family in Buffalo. I, most of my aunts and uncles, my dad, have, we have uh, 13 aunts and uncles just on my dad's side, most of which all live in Buffalo. Really? <laughs> so oh, I go to see, Buffalo. I've gone to Buffalo. Really good often. excuse to get you here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll also uh, post your information in the description as well. And also you mentioned Facebook that you guys can find him on there as well. And please su subscribe to uh, his channels, you know, give him some reviews, help him out. He really needs it. Well, he doesn't really need it, but he'd really like it. And we'd I like do, it too. I do. I <laughs> do. Yeah. We want to see him get popular. So he's my celebrity. So that's what oh, now wow. is probably. So life. yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I feel a slight bond now. Uh, yeah. Hey, same here, man. This was a really good discussion. And uh, um, you, you have my number. You can share it with, with Dallas if you want. If he ever wants to give me a call, it's definitely not a bother. People call me all the time. If you ever want to talk, you have a question about something, you could uh, just give me a buzz. Nice. Yeah, you are extremely knowledgeable. I've appreciated everything that you shared with me. Well, I appreciate those kind words, man. I really do. Yeah, I get, I get caught up too easily. I get in things. They start saying weird words and stuff, and my mind goes, pow. And you had a nice way of, you got a beautiful smile and you just put it out there. And nice <laughs> well, thank you. Great. I just gave you, I just typed in my number in the text there. So you want to jot that down. I, I seriously mean it. Just throw me a text if you want to talk or whatever and let me know it's you and, uh, and we can talk whenever. Awesome. That's awesome. Thanks. All right, Eli, we appreciate you, man. And until next time, this is Rooted in Revelation, where we seek to make God's revelation our foundation in mind, desire, and will. God bless all the listeners. We're so grateful for you. Come back next time.